Hey folks, welcome to the Law of Self-Defense ongoing coverage of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. I am, of course, attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self-Defense. And the closing statements are now done in the Rittenhouse trial. The jury will now begin deliberations, although not until tomorrow morning. That means, of course, that we'll be launching our verdict watch blog post first thing in the morning at Legal Insurrection, legalinsurrection.com. So keep your eyes there for breaking news on a verdict. We'll also have additional analysis of the closing statements moving forward. Tonight, I really only have time to kind of hit the high points of what I think is most important. Uh, the title probably gives some of that away. Um, and then we'll follow up with more detailed analysis of uh, Assistant DA Binger's closing argument for the state and Assistant DA Krause's rebuttal of the defense closing. So with that, let's dive into the unpleasant task of noting the poor closing argument presented by the defense in this case. And this is an unpleasant task because on the legal merits, Kyle Rittenhouse ought to be acquitted by a unanimous jury on every one of the five felony counts against him with the state having failed to prove provocation beyond a reasonable doubt and having failed to have disproven self-defense beyond a reasonable doubt. And that may still happen. I hope it does. He deserves those acquittals. That said, I'm well aware that sometimes defendants who deserve acquittal end up getting convicted regardless. There might be many reasons that could occur. One of those reasons is a weak legal defense, and particularly a weak defense on the critical closing argument the last opportunity the defense team has to plead their narrative of innocence to the jury. If the legal defense effort, particularly the closing argument, is as close to perfect as a skilled attorney can hope to deliver and the client gets convicted regardless, well, at least from my perspective as a lawyer, at least I know I did the best I could and it didn't go sideways because I could have done more. When an effort far short of perfect is delivered, however, again, particularly in closing argument, and the client deserving of an acquittal gets convicted, then one is always left to wonder whether a better closing argument might have made the difference, whether if more had been done, the client would be free today. And Kyle Rittenhouse deserved a better closing argument than he got today. And if he's convicted on any of these charges, I would find it hard to not attribute such an injustice to much of anything except today's weak closing argument by his attorney, Mark Richards. Well, excepting, of course, for the politically motivated prosecution itself, but that's precisely what the defense is supposed to stop. The weaknesses in the defense closing argument really fall into two broad categories with a bit of overlap between them. One category of weakness includes aspects that are inherent to the closing itself, aspects that diminish the closing irrespective of anything the prosecution is arguing. These are really kind of own goals, and there, there's no good excuse for these at all. The second category of weakness is more of a failure to anticipate and account for the perfectly foreseeable points the state was likely to make on rebuttal. The defense has to anticipate these because they will have no opportunity to speak to the jury again after that rebuttal. Given the lateness of the hour, I'm going to focus this content slowly on this kind of high-level review of the defense closing argument to get it all out to you in something like a timely manner this evening. Then I'll follow up in the morning with a more detailed breakdown, again, of the state's closing argument by Assistant DA Binger, uh, which was essentially what we expected, a more comprehensive look at the defense closing by Richards, perhaps, and a detailed breakdown of the state's rebuttal by Assistant DA Krause, which was also pretty poor. Um, and then I'll include uh, the relevant video clips of all those closing arguments and rebuttal in tomorrow's content. 
Before we jump in, I do want to thank the sponsor of today's content, CCWSA, for provider of legal service memberships, what many people mistakenly call self-defense insurance. Effectively, what CCWSAFE does is pay its members legal expenses if the member is involved in a use of force event, and those expenses start big and get bigger fast, folks. If you shot someone in self-defense, find yourself charged with murder or manslaughter, it's easy to burn through $200,000 before you even get to trial. So unless you have that kind of money stuffed in a mattress just in case you're compelled to defend yourself or your family, it can be helpful to have a partner standing behind you with the resources you need to fight that legal battle the way you want it fought as if the rest of your life depends on it, because it really does. I've looked at all the companies that offer similar services, as you might imagine. I found that CCW Safe is by far the best fit for me. I'm personally a member. Whether they're the best fit for you is something only you can decide, but I do urge you to take a look at what they have to offer by pointing your browser to lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe. And if you do decide to become a member there, you can save 10% off your membership with the discount code LOSD10. That's LOSD for Law of Self-Defense and the number 10 at that URL, lawofselfdefense.com slash ccwsafe. Uh, so to get back to the uh, the weakness of the closing uh, argument here, perhaps the single biggest weakness I saw in the defense closing argument was apparent from the first moments of attorney Mark Richard speaking to the jury in which I suppose was predictable by his generally gruff manner and why I would have preferred to have had attorney Corey Chirofasi do the defense closing in place of Richard's. That's not a criticism of Richard's uh, legal capabilities per se, but the way he presents himself to the jury. And he presented himself as in an angry and personal tone um, that he took to the prosecution. Uh, now, let me make clear, there's no question to my mind that the prosecution in this case has earned every bit of that anger. The state has played fast and loose with both the facts and the law in this case, trying to gin up a conviction from crumbs left on the bakery floor, all with the goal of putting Kyle Rittenhouse into a cage for the rest of his life by legal means not soundly based on facts and law. And that's horrible and wrong. The prosecution and defense attorneys are both lawyers who work within the criminal trial setting, but their roles are very different. The inherent power of the state means that they are more tightly constrained than is the defense, or they ought to be. The mission of the defense is a win by any means necessary. It's the burden of the state to overcome the wily defense and achieve a conviction beyond any reasonable doubt, to get that win for their client. For the prosecution, the mission is, or is supposed to be, much different. The prosecution's mission is supposed to be justice, not merely winning by any means necessary. So I have no doubt that Richard's anger and resentment towards the prosecution here is genuine and well-founded, but that's not the point of closing argument. Closing argument does not exist so the defense counsel can air out his frustrations with the game playing of the prosecution. Closing argument exists so the defense can have that last final opportunity to compellingly communicate their narrative of innocence to the jury, the last chance they will ever have to do that, to secure that acquittal for the client. Even more important than usual when the client overwhelmingly is deserving of an acquittal, as here. I suggest that using the closing argument as a forum to bitch at the prosecution does not do much at all to help secure that acquittal for the client, especially not when a better choice of tone would likely have been far more effective. Taking the tone of those rioters, looters, and arsonists raw scumbags, and this prosecution is just a suit-wearing version of the same chaos may feel good and may even be to some degree true. 
But does it help sell the narrative of innocence to a jury that is looking at all this through entirely different eyes than those of the lead defense counsel? I'll note here that the state has repeatedly referenced Kyle as a kind of vigilante, out looking for trouble until he found it, expecting to be treated as a hero and just trying to be famous, per Kyle's own TikTok profile. To the extent that the defense is presenting Kyle as someone they believe should be perceived as a heroic defender and the people he shot are endangered as miscreants who had it coming, that only helps the prosecution paint their client in this negative light. And it doesn't matter that the defense portrayal of Kyle is true, that he was heroic. That doesn't matter. What matters is how the jury perceives this presentation. If this jury convicts on any of these charges, and they well might, it will be because the prosecution has been successful in fostering some degree of sympathy among the jurors for the people killed, maimed, and purportedly endangered at the hands of Kyle Rittenhouse. To put it another way, unless that's happened, an acquittal's already secured, and the defense does not need to engage in this fire and brimstone display at all in closing argument. But of course, we can't know what the situation with the jury is. So we have to assume that some degree of sympathy for the quote unquote victims has been successfully fostered by the prosecution. That's the risk to the acquittal. If that's so, you don't make ground with the jurors in particular by shouting your outrage about these horrible people. Instead, you just come across as unsympathetic, which of course reflects on your client. A better approach, in my humble opinion, is to approach the jury not from one's own position as a righteously outraged defense attorney with a client facing a potentially cataclysmic conviction for no good reason, but rather from the position of those jurors themselves, the ones who might be somewhat sympathetic to the victims here. Acknowledge that the people who died were human beings, and you and your client wish they were still alive today, even with respect to the initial aggressor, Joseph Rosenbaum, whose attack on Kyle triggered all else that followed. Everyone would prefer that he were alive today. Everyone wishes that nobody died that night in Kenosha, and that's particularly true of your client. He wishes that. That said, it wasn't your client's choice that these tragic events occurred. It was, was the result of the choices of those others, choices that compelled your client to exercise his privilege under Wisconsin law to defend himself from violent, life-threatening attack. Acknowledge that perhaps those people who attacked Kyle, especially at the second location, might have genuinely believed they were acting to stop some kind of active shooter. They were mistaken, of course. Kyle was as far from an active shooter as it was possible to be, for reasons you'll detail in a moment in your closing argument. Perhaps even Rosenbaum's attack was triggered by personal demons that nobody but he could understand, but which he found impossible to resist. Whatever the reasons for their attacks, however, no matter how well-intentioned or compelled by personal demons they might have been, none of that, not one bit of it, in any way diminishes the privilege of your client to defend himself from those attacks. There's nothing my client wishes more than that Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber were still alive and with their loved ones, and that Gage Grosskreutz was unmaimed. That's the world my client would have chosen to exist today if only those people and others had not violently stripped that option from him by their attacks, however motivated, that threatened him with apparent imminent death. My next point here may be more a reflection of my own personal temperament, just a personal or professional preference on my part, 
But frankly, I would have been far more detailed and specific and methodical in stepping through the elements of self-defense as applied to each of these felony charges. For each count, I would have made clear in plain language exactly what circumstances would lead Kyle to believe he was facing an unlawful, forcible attack, that element of innocence, that the harm feared from that attack was either already being inflicted or apparently immediately about to occur, the element of imminence, how the nature of the threat presented as an apparent risk of death or serious bodily injury, specifically, explicitly, that's the element of proportionality, and how all this was not just genuinely believed, but objectively reasonable under the circumstances. This would have been particularly useful in addressing the all-critical first attack by Joseph Rosenbaum. We've seen throughout the trial, Assistant DA Binger has made much of the argument that some of the people attacking Kyle were unarmed. Indeed, at one of the pretrial hearings, Binger had actually argued that it could never be lawful for an armed man to shoot an attacker who was unarmed. So the defense ought to have had every expectation that much would be made in closing about the unarmed nature of Rosenbaum's attack on Rittenhouse. The defense ought to have had every expectation that much would be made in closing about the unarmed nature of Rosenbaum's attack on Rittenhouse, and it should have been made crystal clear to the jury how deceptive this framing was. In particular, Rosenbaum was not merely fake rushing Kyle or poking Kyle with an index finger or even shoving Kyle forcibly backward. Rosenbaum was fighting Kyle for control of his rifle and in the context of the death threats Ryan Balch and Kyle himself had testified about, as well as Joanne Fielder. The moment Rosenbaum is fighting for the control of the rifle, he is no longer unarmed in any meaningful sense of the term. Instead, he's in the process of arming himself with a rifle, with Kyle's rifle. If Rosenbaum were picking up a dropped rifle from the ground under those circumstances, nobody would doubt he was arming himself for the purpose of using that rifle on Kyle, or at least that Kyle could have that reasonable perception. By not merely picking up some other rifle, but fighting Kyle for his own rifle, Rosenbaum is actually creating a greater threat than just picking up a rifle because he's simultaneously disarming Kyle while he's arming himself. No such argument was made by Richards during his close, and I expect I know why, and it's understandable why. Maybe not forgivable, but understandable, because he approached this closing argument from his own perspective, as someone to whom this argument is obvious and intuitive, doesn't hardly needs to be made, rather than from the perspective of jurors who had developed some sympathy for these victims and their families, and for whom this notion of arming oneself with the other guy's gun might not be so obvious and intuitive. By addressing this issue only vaguely, or not at all, Richards left a gaping opening for Assistant DA Kraus to wobble through in his own state rebuttal argument where he went on at length about Rosenbaum's status as unarmed. Kyle brought a gun to a bar fight. He could have punched Rosenbaum or kicked him in the testicles or struck him with a rifle as an impact weapon, anything other than fire four rounds into him for the purported offense of merely chasing him. The failure to make the legal concept of imminence clear also left another gaping opening for Krauss to suggest to the jury that Kyle was not permitted to defend himself against an attack that was immediately about to occur and avoid injury entirely. Rather, Krauss suggested sometimes we just have to take a beating before we're privileged to defend yourself, and Kyle didn't do that. Frankly, that's just an outright misstatement of the law. In fact, a defender need not suffer so much as a scratch before being privileged to use even deadly force in self-defense. 
In any case, the defense is unable to respond to any of this nonsense by Assistant DA Krause because they don't get to rebut the state rebuttal. So by necessity, such things must be addressed prior in the defense closing. And they were not. Personally, I would have preferred to have seen a much more methodical progression through each of the elements of self-defense for each of the criminal charges so that the jurors had an easy, well-marked trail to a justification acquittal on each of them. You don't want the jury to spend hours in deliberations hacking through those 36 pages of jury instructions with a layperson's understanding and misunderstanding of the legal concepts, especially when they were so confusingly communicated by Judge Schroeder in the first place. Instead, you want to show the jury the way in a step-by-step fashion. See, you start here, and this is how we, the defense, see the evidence applied to this legal condition of self-defense, and that brings us right over here where we think this happens based on our read of the evidence, what we think you should find to be the read of the evidence. And that brings us over here, and then here, and then acquittal. Now let's do count two. Also, an absolutely critical facet of any claim of self-defense is that the perceptions, decisions, and actions be assessed from the perspective of the actual defendant, given their particular attributes, the surrounding circumstances, abilities and disabilities, training and experience, and so forth. In this particular case, we have a 17-year-old Kyle Rittenhouse who found himself isolated and alone in horrifically chaotic circumstances not of his own making and facing a series of apparently lethal attackers. Did Kyle make the best of all possible decisions in each of these use-of-force encounters? Frankly, I think he probably did, but that's not the point. Our concern is that a jury might not think so, that a juror might have thought, well, that with hindsight, there were a better option was available. I mean, we can see how the prosecution pounded home on this point when they kept coming back to the idea that the the first round to strike Rosenbaum broke his pelvis and probably left him instantly unable to further threaten Kyle, yet Kyle shot him three more times, including the fatal shot to the back, the kill shot. Strictly speaking, with perfect hindsight, we can see that those successive three shots were probably not actually necessary. Does that make them unlawful? After all, isn't lawful self-defense conditioned on necessity? Well, no, actually, lawful self-defense is conditioned on apparent necessity. And there was no way in that brief three-quarter seconds in which Kyle fired his first and last shot into Rosenbaum that Kyle could have known that his first shot had effectively knocked Rosenbaum to the ground. During that three-quarter seconds, Rosenbaum continued to present as apparently diving and lunging for control of Kyle's rifle, and thus continued to present as an apparent deadly force threat for each of those four rounds. Binger touched on the question of whether all four of these rounds were genuinely necessary and therefore lawful, or whether that third or fourth shot, the killed shot to the back, was unnecessary and unlawful, as the state argued. He did this on his closing. Richard's response wasn't just not helpful, it might well have been harmful. And again, because he approached the issue from his own perspective rather than from the perspective of a juror who had perhaps developed some sympathy for the victims in this case. Instead of speaking to this issue on the basis that self-defense law provides for the reasonable perceptions of Kyle of apparent circumstances and in the context of his age, prior experiences, including the death threat from Rosenbaum, current chaotic circumstances and so forth, Richards used an argument an analogy that likely angered one or more jurors. 
Let me take a step back for a moment. So recall that these Kenosha riots were over the police shooting of Jacob Blake, something the prosecution touched upon repeatedly. Well, the prosecution is not repeatedly mentioning Jacob Blake, the catalyst of those nights of chaos, because it's harmful to the prosecution. In fact, much of the world believes the false narrative that Jacob Blake was wrongfully shot seven times in the back by Kenosha police officers, a use of force later deemed justified, and that therefore there was certainly genuine legitimacy to the protests that followed, and perhaps a bit of, yeah, I don't like it, but I understand where it's coming from, even for some of the less prominent property damage caused by the actual rioters. In other words, there are a lot of people who genuinely believe, if mistakenly believe, that the shooting of Blake was, as they might put it, a profound social injustice. With this background in mind, and assuming that there are prospectively several people like that on the jury, how did Richards decide to contextualize Kyle's firing four rounds into Rosenbaum? Well, he told the jury, uh, that can't be so bad. I've seen cases right here in Kenosha where someone shot another person seven times, and that was deemed fine. Now, he didn't say the name Jacob Blake, but I'm sure everybody in Kenosha knows the name of the guy who was shot seven times in what was later deemed a justified shooting. It should go without saying that anybody who believes that the shooting of Jacob Blake in the back seven times was an obvious social injustice is not going to feel any more favorable to Kyle having shot Rosenbaum four times, including in the back, in an analogy made by his own defense attorney. Another drop ball was in the context of the AR versus handgun issue raised by the prosecution at numerous times throughout the trial. Binger suggested to the jury that, hey, all Grosskreutz had was a pistol. And in contrast, Kyle had this giant, powerful AR-15 rifle with a 30-round magazine loaded with full metal jacket bullets. That can't be fair. Richard's only response to this was a dismissive, hey, guns are guns, bullets are bullets. And from his own perspective as a criminal defense attorney, that's pretty much 100% right. I mean, from a legal perspective, it's all deadly force. Both pistol and rifle are readily capable of causing death or serious bodily injury under the circumstances in place here. And, and so there's really no legal distinction between them for this trial. But that's not how a jury is going to look at it. A pistol and a rifle, in fact, are different with different capabilities. And there was testimony to this at trial. Typical police body armor can stop pistol rounds, but not AR rounds. Pistols are routinely carried for personal protection in public and ARs only rarely so, if ever. Pistols have a relatively short range, but an AR can shoot out to 550 yards. In many obvious ways, the Glock pistol of Grosskreutz and the AR-15 of Kyle are substantively different, and simply dismissively saying, guns are guns, bullets are bullets, does not adequately address this. Instead, Richards should have conceded that it's true that in many respects, the pistol and the rifle here are very different but they were not different in any way that applied in these particular circumstances. This was not a case where the two men were 550 yards apart, for example, so that the rifle was effective, but the pistol was harmless. Under these circumstances, either weapon was readily able to inflict death or serious bodily injury to another, and therefore there was no meaningful distinction between them for the purposes of this trial. Okay, folks, I do have more to say on this topic, but the hour is getting late. The team will want to get this published tonight, so I'll follow up with further thoughts in the morning. Don't forget to join us for our Verdict Watch blog post. We'll have up all day for breaking news related to the verdict. And, of course, I'll almost certainly be putting up more posts covering in greater detail various aspects of the closing arguments today. Remember, if you carry a gun, so you're hard to kill. That's why I carry a gun, so I'm hard to kill, so my family is hard to kill. 
You also owe it to yourself and your family to make sure you know the law so you're hard to convict. Until tomorrow morning, I remain attorney Andrew Branker for Law of Self-Defense. Stay safe.